Um, so this past Thursday, Betsy and I had the opportunity to practice grandparents' uh, babysitting. Uh, so our, our daughter, it was her birthday on Friday, and so uh, they live in Greensboro. So she and Tyler um, had this special dinner somewhere uptown, some nice restaurant they went. Um, so they drove to our house, dropped off David, and then went, continued on their journey, to, and left him there with us for a few hours. Uh, so that was pretty fun. That was pretty, uh, uh, pretty cool uh, to be able to do that. Um, many of you probably know that our daughter, um, who's now 32, uh, she was a preemie when she was born. She was born 10 weeks early, uh, at 30 weeks, at three and a half pounds. Uh, so just a tiny, tiny. She literally came home in a Cabbage Patch doll outfit. Remember them? So that was uh, how small she was. That was a pretty stressful season of our lives. Um, I, uh, I had just graduated from seminary, just graduate school, uh, just a couple weeks prior. Um, and the plan was for us to go back to the church that we originally came from in Pittsburgh. And then three days before graduation, they called and said, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, and so I hadn't even put together a resume, let alone sent anything out. So we're scram I'm scrambling now to try, what are we going to do? How are we going to make ends meet? And trying to find a place for ministry and serve. And the, the other thing, too, with her, uh, Betsy, which she would start contractions, um, you know, and so that they had her, um, I don't think at first they don't, they, they, they had her at, at home on an IV, and then that wasn't working, so then she was in the hospital. But because I graduated, my student insurance was about to end. Um, so that whole thing was on top of us. We had no family, and we were living in Southern California at the time. You know, we're on our own. You know, we had friends in the area, but still, there was no family um, that we could lean on and that could help and support us. And on top of all that, we're dealing with a very, very, very active three-year-old. Um, our son, Sam, was just one of those kids that just never stopped. From the moment he woke up till the time he crashed and burned at night um, and fell asleep, he was just constant motion. Um, well, to make a long story short, um, you know, the school, I had been working there part-time in the academic affairs office. They created a permanent, I'm sorry, they created a full-time position for me. It was, it was temporary. So they said, all right, we can do you for this while, but we can't, this is not going to be a permanent thing. So I at least had for the short term, we had that taken care of. I enrolled in one class to take to, in order to get the student insurance. Um, and so I couldn't even tell you what class I took. Uh, I don't remember finishing it. I didn't even know if I went to the class. I did it entirely for the student insurance. Um, then after a six-week stay in the hospital, Sarah did come home and never looked back, and we were grateful for that. Um, ironically, that, that I think it was about $450 for the class at the time, which then was a really, really lot of money, but it saved us from about a $75,000 hospital bill, which is what Sarah incurred, and this was 32 years ago. Okay, so you can imagine just what that looks like. And people, those of you who have had medical expenses recently, you know that, that just, it just gets out of control thing. Um, so one year later from that, uh, we're planning Sarah's first birthday party. And Betsy always did up the first birthday party. It's always this big blowout affair. You know, it's not just, you know, us. It's uh, friends. It's a big party. And uh, um, part of that also included her putting together a scrapbook. Remember those? Those of you remember what scrapbooks? Um, and, uh, you know, so she's collecting all these pictures from Sarah and all these things. And so over the course of a couple of weeks, 
Betsy is reliving the entire ordeal of Sarah's birth. You know, just even things from when she was home, the, you know, IV that she said, you know, just you know, trying to keep her from having contractions. You know, remembering, you know, calling me from the hospital before it was even sent up saying, you need to get here ASAP. The doctor says, you know, if I sneeze, this baby's coming, you need to get here now. Uh, you know, the rush into the delivery room as dawn's breaking, you know, realizing, you know, the aspirator in the room wasn't working, you know, in the delivery room, so they had to rush her out, not knowing if she's okay or where they're taking her. You know, then there was a week of just not seeing any progress. She wasn't growing. She wasn't adding weight. And what's going to happen? Is she going to turn the corner? Six weeks of going to the hospital every day. And then the stress of all the false positive alarms that went off. She came home on a heart monitor. And um, all these false positives in the middle of the night that just, I mean, those things just blare and it just sends your heart racing and she's fine. Um, and so all that. And so, so in this, as Betsy's putting all this together, this scrapbook, although Sarah's fine, she's reliving all of this stuff that she just been, been happening. And then on the day before the big party, Betsy finds out she's pregnant with Peter. Needless to say, we were not expecting a child at this point in time. <laughs> um, now added to all this, my, the school I was working at said, all right, we can't extend this anymore. Your job is ending here soon. Um, we were making plans actually to move from California to Minnesota to, with family. Um, we had no insurance. And for us in that moment, it seemed as if the entire world was crashing in on us. What if this happens again? You know, can, how are we going to manage that? And how are we going to pay for any medical bills Literally for about two or three days, we were just in this fog. Ever experienced that? Where you get some news, something happens, and it just upsets your entire world, and you don't even know how to think or breathe or do anything. Just getting up and be able to function and get dressed is an accomplishment. And that's kind of the way we were at that point in time. You know, it was, uh, it was in that two or three days, uh, actually, it's probably much at the end of that, um, after two or three days, I was on the phone talking with my mom. And uh, my mom is not this real verbal person. You know, she walks in the room, no one notices. She's not this, you know, the personality plus kind of person. Um, but she's just a really good listener. And so I'm commiserating, you know, with her about all the things. There's, you know, and she didn't say, oh, it's going to be okay. She didn't try to cheer me up. She didn't quote a Bible verse to me. But she kind of listened. And then she made this one comment. She said, this must be one special baby for God to bring him into your life at this point in time. That sentence, that one sentence changed everything. Everything. All, until all that, up, up until that moment, all the things we could focus on were our circumstances. What were we doing? How are we going to pay for the thing and medical bills and all the fear of what if this happens again and, and all this kind of stuff and how it affected us. My mom's statement reminded us that God was in the middle of our circumstances. God was in the middle of the life of that baby. And even though the circumstances hadn't changed, nothing changed. You know, so it wasn't as if, like my mom said it, and you know, everything got better. Everything was the same, but nothing was the same. Everything was different. 
we no longer felt anxious and overwhelmed by our circumstances because we knew that God was at work in, in the middle of that circumstance. Well, we're in week two of a series where we've referred to as the calm, <clears throat> how to break free from emotional prison of anxiety and stress in our lives. You know, and we've discussed last week, we pointed out the fact that anxiety and stress is inescapable. None of us can escape it. However, it doesn't have to dominate our life. It doesn't have to consume us. And CALM, the way we've used it, is actually an acronym that we've observed in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 4 through 8, there's, there's things that Paul talks about in that passage that we think are helpful for us in just trying to not be dominated by anxiety. Um, and what we talked about last week was the first thing is just celebrate God's goodness. Um, and then this idea of ask God for help is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, thirdly, it's leave our concerns with him and meditate on good things. So celebrate, ask, leave, meditate. Those first letters of those th four words uh, spell the word calm. And then in the middle of all of it, in the middle of what Paul's talking about in verse 7, and he says this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now the passage begins with verse 4, where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. That's what we looked at last week. And Paul tells us, when he says that um, to rejoice, he's not saying, hey, that, you know, be happy that bad things are happening to you. Be happy that you're stressful. It's not this mind over matter type of thing. This wasn't some kind of a, you know, um, you know hey, if you say it enough, it'll be okay. What he, was what he was calling us to was that not to a feeling. What he was calling us to was a decision in a deeply rooted confidence that God exists, that he's in control, and that he is good. That's why we rejoice. We don't rejoice because life is easy. We don't rejoice because life is peaceful. We rejoice because we believe in a God who holds the universe in his hands. And today we pick up with verse five. <clears throat> um, and we're going to have it here on the screen as we usually do. Let's, can we read this together? It's very short, verses five and six. Uh, so it's all here on the screen. So let's read together, can we? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. In it is wisdom and life. And uh, Father, we need that today. And we especially need these words of encouragement to not be overwhelmed and consumed by anxiety. So Lord, as I share, I ask, Father, that you would speak through me that each person, Father, hears what they need to hear um, in these next few minutes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm convinced that every person needs someone like my mom in their life. Somebody who has the ability to inject God into the emotional cesspool of our anxiety and stress. That's what Paul's talking about. When he says, let your gentleness be evident to all, um, the, the Greek word for gentleness there conveys this idea of temperament, kind of a seasoned in nature kind of a person. Um, they're mature, they're level-headed, even-handed, fair. It's the opposite of overreaction and panic. 
You know, it's when as a grandparent or as even as a parent, um, or even as an adult, and a child comes to you and they're all, you know, they're freaking out over things, the world's going to end, and you realize, wait a minute, this is, this is fine. You're going to be okay. You know, we're going to figure this out. We'll get through it and you'll be fine. It's that idea of, of being um, calm and about being gentle. You're not stressed. You're not panicked. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Max Lucado referred to this person as someone with contagious calm. That they just sense to bring calm to everyone else around them. In the midst of a crisis, they're able to do that. Someone who can reassure us, reassure us um, I know it might not look like it now, but God is at work in this situation. You're going to be okay. Being convinced that God is at work is what allows us to break free from the prison of anxiety and stress. It's the reason why I think this is so important is because I suspect that most of us are already confident that God is able. I think most of us believe that God can do anything. Um, there's nothing beyond God's power or influence. I shared last week my favorite verse is Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. So whether it's human effort, the heart of the king, or natural circumstances, the river of water, God can work through it and accomplish his purposes. And nothing can keep God from accomplishing his purposes in my life. There's nothing beyond God's influence and power. Matthew 19, 26 says, with God, all things are possible. So I suspect those of us who believe in God don't doubt that he's all powerful. And because God is all powerful, he can help us navigate whatever life brings our way. See, we know God can do anything. However, in a moment of crisis, the question remains, is God at work in my present situation? And that's where we, we, that's the question we have to answer. Similarly, I think most of us are already convinced that God cares. The entirety of our faith is built upon the understanding that God saw the state of humanity, that we were without hope, we had no way forward, and he took the initiative to do something about it. John 3.16 is a classic verse that supports that idea. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You are so valuable that Christ died for you. He not only cares for you, but he cares about what you're struggling with as well. God is able and God cares for me. These are two ideas that I had no trouble accepting in this moment of panic and crisis when we found out that Peter was on his way. I knew God was able, and I knew he cared. What my mom did for me was remind me that God was at work in my life at that moment. Which leads to the third point in your outlines there. Be aware that God is near. Be aware that God is near. <clears throat> God promised Abraham that if he follows him to, that, that if Abraham would go, leave his homeland and go to an, a land he would, did not yet know, that God would bless him and give him offspring. And Abraham was waiting 25 years for the fulfillment of that promise. Towards the end of that time, probably after 20 years, Abraham's in the depths of despair, not having any children, and he's trying to take some things in his own hand. But God comes to him and he says, do not be afraid. 
I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. To Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's handmaiden, who was abandoned and betrayed by Abraham and Sarah and abandoned by them out in the desert, the angel comes to her and says, do not be afraid, God has heard the cries. To Isaac, who was forced off his land by Philistines, God comes to him and says, do not be afraid, I am with you. And before he died, Moses reminded Joshua, who is now in charge of all the Israelites and getting them into the promised land. Moses reminded Joshua and says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Notice a pattern in all those examples. And there's others we could have picked up from Scripture. In each situation, God reminded them that they were not alone. He was with them. And and he was working on their behalf. Now, if that weren't enough, God actually calls himself Emmanuel. Which means God with us. God with us. God became flesh in the person of Jesus. And he's still with us in the form of his Holy Spirit. Um, can I see the, the verse again, Lori, that we read? Okay. Um, so this actually doesn't help me because the verses are not, the verse numbers. But if you're looking in your app or Bible, you're going to see before the L on, on number five, for verse five, and then number six actually happens on the second line before the word do. So when you're reading it, verse five is let your generals be evident to all the Lord is near. That's kind of how we read it. And then we start with this verse six. This is one example where I think whoever, and the numbers were, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were inserted, I forget exactly when, but it's a couple centuries after these were written. So this was written as a letter. It was all thing. <clears throat> This is one example where I think that whoever inserted the numbers, they got it wrong. I think that number six should actually happen before the word the. Or at, so, after the first, so verse five is just let your gentleness be evident to all, period. That's verse five. Six, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. It's one thought. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. <clears throat> You are not alone. You may feel alone. You may sometimes think you're alone. But there is never a moment in life that you're without help. God is always near. Now those first three points that we just mentioned speak to our frame of mind. They're reassurance to us of God's character, his sovereignty, his love, his mercy, and his presence. Now, having the proper frame of mind is so very important because fear triggers either prayer or despair. Fear takes us one way or the other. So happy, having the proper frame of mind will lead us to prayer. So with that proper frame of mind, we're able to calm ourselves down a bit and ask God for help. <clears throat> which is the, the last point we want to bring up here, is invite God into your situation as you choose prayer over despair. 
Paul tells us in verse six, in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The road to peace is always paved with prayer. 1 Peter 5, 7 directs us to cast all, our, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So as you sense anxiety welling up inside you, cast in the direction of Jesus Christ. You know what the really cool thing is? God wants us to come to him in prayer. You know, he's not like, oh, you again? Why are you bothering me? Or it's like, you know, hey, wait a minute. I'm watching a show here. Come back to me in 10 minutes. You know, he's, he really does want us to do that. In Psalm 50, he says, uh, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. And then Matthew, Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 7, and he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. God's inviting us to join him, to come to him with prayer. Now, at the end of Luke 18, um, there's a really interesting story. Jesus is walking down the road, and um, there's a blind man who's sitting there, and he hears you know, a commotion, and he asks, him, what's going on? And someone tells him, well, Jesus is coming by. So he starts yelling out loudly, Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing here, Jesus, have mercy on me. And uh, everyone says, hey, be quiet, don't bother him, you know. And he just becomes more persistent, starts yelling even louder. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus stopped and asked him probably one of the strangest questions anyone's ever asked another person. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, the, the guy's blind, you know? And Jesus, surely you recognize that, right? I mean, you surely understand that he's blind. One would think that the answer is pretty obvious. Yet Jesus wanted to hear the man articulate his specific request. Honestly, I don't know why, because he didn't do that all the time. There's that times where he knew it was going and he anticipated and responded well. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus asked the question not so much for the man, but it's for those who are around him, observing. But I also think that it helps us to articulate specifically what it is we're praying for. You know, Lord, have mercy on me. That could go so many different ways. And I think sometimes we pray, God, help me. And I think he might say, all right, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want help with? He wants us to respond specifically. Present your request to God. Prayer is a process of inviting God into your situation and transferring the weight from your life to his care. So as you pray, pray with confidence. James 1.6 says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Pray with confidence. And again, this goes back to what we talked about last week. We're not just wondering if someone can hear us or if someone has the capacity to actually help us. We're praying to a God who is the creator of the universe, who there is nothing beyond his capacity, nothing beyond his ability but a God who loves you intimately and passionately and cares for and wants nothing but the best for you. Pray with confidence. 
Also, pray the promises. Um, Isaiah chapter 43, and then I'll get in chapter 62. Isaiah 43 and 62. There's interesting conversations going between the prophet Isaiah and God. Um, and, in, and in both those chapters, God says something, again, I'm paraphrasing here. God says, put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. Basically what he's saying is, is that God is saying, listen, remind me what I told you before. Let's, let's have that conversation. What did I tell you before? God wants us to do that, not because he forgot. I was like, wait, what did I say? Really? Did I say that? You know, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that we need to be reminded of God's promises for us. We forget. And sometimes we're so carried away with the emotions of the moment of, of how we're going to deal with a third child here in this time that we forget about the fact that, wait, God is so able to take care of all of this. So find a promise that fits your problem and make a prayer out of it. So an example might be if you're needing direction. God, I don't know which way to go. An example for you might be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. So Lord, the prayer then would be, Lord, in your word it says this. Lord, I'm saying here and now, today I trust you and I want to live my life for you. Do what you said you would do and lead me in the way I should go. Pray the promises. Pray what God says in his word. Again, God invites us to do that. He's not threatened, you know? I mean, some, those of us who have been married sometimes get a little offended when our spouse reminds us again, you know, to do something. That's not the way God responds. God is so much wanting us to respond, interact, not so much for, again, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. Lastly, then, pray with persistence. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story um, to his followers about a woman who wasn't getting justice, and she was just this persistent noise in the ears of a judge. And Jesus even says, this judge did not fear God. He was not, a, he was not, you know, so doing the right thing was not up to, he didn't care. But he ultimately gave the woman what she wanted because he was tired of listening to her. So he used that example, not as a way, a way this is not an example of God responding to us. This is an example of if persistence will work on somebody who is so ungodly, Imagine what persistence will do to a God who actually loves you and cares for you. He was doing this to show contrast. Be persistent. He, the, we should not give up in prayer. If you're here today and you're carrying an ungodly, I use that word intently, an ungodly amount of anxiety and fear, just know that it's not from God. <clears throat> but also know that you don't have to take it home with you. You can leave it here. You can be free today. You can give it to God in prayer. And you can let him carry it for you. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I would suspect in a room with as many people as we have here today that there's at least one, if not uh, many, many more, Lord, who are struggling today with something. There's something in the, in the back of their life that just kind of is this drumbeat. What am I gonna do about this? How am I gonna solve that? What's gonna happen in this situation? And Father, that is, that is, that is a terrible way to live. Father, I pray that in these next moments, Father, as we're, we're wrapping this time up, that even now, even now, Lord, as I'm speaking, that they might say, God, take this from me. God, be present in my life. Lord, let me know that you're there, Father. And may, Lord, they be able to fashion very specific requests, let you know what it is they need. And Father, may you just remind them, give them a very specific, a very specific um, road marker that just lets them know they're on the right path. You haven't forgotten about them. You know where they're at and you are with them. Lord, just knowing you're with us, knowing that you're going to help us through this situation is all we need. It's all we need for today. And Lord, may that be enough. May we be content with that. So Father, again, we just uh, continue to put our lives into your hands and trust you. We do not have all the answers. We don't understand. There's so many things we just don't get. But Father, the one thing we do is, is we trust you. So Father, take our, our faulty vessels that leak and fill us up with your presence. Fill us up with your joy. Fill us up, Father, with your power and might this day. And we do, and I ask this, Father, in Jesus' name.